Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows, and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. Amanda Thompson from Thompson & Scott. Now Amanda is the multi-award winning CEO and founder of Thompson & Scott, the company that is making some real changes in the wine industry by leading the movement to give consumers as much detail as possible as to what's in their bottle. Because what's incredible is that wine is currently one of the only sectors in the food and drink industry that doesn't have to tell you exactly what you're drinking. Amanda's solution is producing top quality vegan and organic sparkling wines that cut unnecessary sugar from production. And Amanda sells their wines into the UK market as well as exporting all over the world. And having sampled both her champagne and Prosecco, I can tell you personally that her products are outstanding. At the end of 2018, Amanda raised over a million pounds in investment through crowdfunding to further develop her product range to include an alcohol-free sparkling wine, to rebrand the business and to invest in marketing. So. I'm super excited to welcome Amanda to find out more. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much. What a lovely intro. It's very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> so, t- so how on earth did you get into wine? You know, tell, us, tell us about how the idea for this business came about. Um, well, I used to drink a lot of champagne. <laughs> um, I was a broadcaster and um, back in the day before social media, we'd often... Um, drink and party, probably harder than people do now. We'd wake up in the morning, put on our game face, and we'd be in the newsrooms. Um, champagne was my um, chosen, um, I suppose, feel-good um, bars of choice. Um, and I grew up with a healthy entrepreneur mother, so she brought me up to think that sugar was the devil. And I was really raised on a no-processed food diet. So. I mean, I've never been an angel in my life, but I was always sort of subscribing throughout most of my life to the 80-20 philosophy, which is, you know, be good 80% of the time, the other 20, you know, got a bit of leeway. And then once I realized that wine was the only legal consumable way, you literally had no idea what you were consuming. That was pretty shocking to me. And then uh, rather to the sort of focus on hypothetically negatively critiquing an industry which I loved um, that was really the seed of my business idea um, this idea about throwing myself into the industry and actually having a portfolio that was focused on cutting sugar being organic where possible being vegan and giving consumers as much information as to what was in the bottle but most importantly tasting delicious um, naivety is a wonderful thing, I say to entrepreneurs. So um, if I'd known everything <laughs> back then, I knew now. Perhaps I might have felt differently. But back then, that seemed like a brilliant idea to, to launch this business. And so here I am. Fantastic. And so you, you actually went and, and rediscovered all about how to actually make wine champagne, didn't you? I did indeed. I threw myself right into the business. I mean, classic journalist, I suppose, in my heart. 
I was like, well, I can't work um, in an industry, you know, launch a business, be an entrepreneur um, in that kind of sphere without knowing pretty much as much as I could learn about it. So I had an open-minded husband who was in the film business, so, so technically traveled a lot anyway, so could move countries. Um, two youngish children, and we threw ourselves into a whole country, moved to France, where I went, went to study under an incredible teacher. Um, racked up a load of debt because my husband's not in hedge funds so um <laughs> it was really all all in um we didn't at that point have a plan b um that whole kind of visionary thing of just throwing yourself right in there and i think that's quite an interesting one sharing this part of the journey i think um the idea of coming out into a whole new industry is quite a specific thing because of course you don't have any of the preconceptions that you might have if you were already entrenched in something so pros and cons but i think the beautiful moment is you throw yourself in two feet and there's not really any turning back at that point at least that there wasn't for me yeah but it allows you to be entrepreneurial doesn't it because you can ask all those kind of stupid questions that people in the industry just wouldn't think to ask but it opens up all those opportunities to to create new businesses absolutely um well, i think that we call them stupid questions that's mm. Um, we're always used to doing that, aren't we? Mm. I think uh, usually the stupid questions are actually the most relevant ones. Um, yeah. And I think um, it was nothing to do with me and my, my sex as to my relationship with questions. But again, going back to being a journalist, you're all about questions. And I think that's been um, one of my strongest points in the business journey. I will ask every, any question. You'd be amazed um, at high level meetings, or probably you might not at this stage in life, um, how often, you know, board meetings, meetings with captains of industry, you know, you'll ask about an acronym. And of course, afterwards, people come up and go, Do you know, I've lived through, you know, those meetings, had no idea what that acronym meant. So forget the term stupid questions I say to entrepreneurs, they're probably the pertinent ones. Yes. And isn't it incredible that, that um, you know, the wine industry doesn't have to publish what's in their products? It's quite incredible. Um, shocking and yet hugely fortuitous um, mm. for those with my brand. I'm the first person globally to focus on shifting an entire industry, which, I mean, is quite phenomenal. And often when I say that to people, they kind of look at me and they go, sense or if they're in the wine business they go that really doesn't make sense <laughs> and you have to think through that process and you say i am literally the first person to ask the question what is in your wine bottle which again going back to my simple questions thing it's actually the most obvious question of all i can think of in the industry and yet the beauty of an industry that is so focused on history so focused on arguably elitism certainly in the old wine world I think sometimes has stopped people from really focusing on those most simple pertinent questions. Mm -hmm. We're wonderful in the sense that there's a whole opportunity here that I'm spearheading globally. Yes, amazing. And so, I mean, but you had that ambition from the get-go about really turning things on their head. So with that ambition, did you, from the early days, think I'm going to need to fund this business to get it off the ground? Yes, and um, interestingly, like every single entrepreneur I now speak to at various points of the journey, I think no matter how much cash you think you'll need, you always need, well, you could argue about the multiples, but a hell of a lot more, I think, today. <laughs> um, so yeah, absolutely, but again, um, I, I wouldn't have necessarily at that point known how much, and I, I think that's true of, of every entrepreneur.
Yeah. So in, in the early days, then where, where did you need to put most of that funding? Was it in product development? Yeah, exactly. And really early R&D um, and just almost analysing, researching pretty much every aspect of, of what I wanted to achieve. I mean, it, it was a pretty ambitious um, starting point. Um, I wanted a portfolio of top quality sparkling wines that from the get-go tasted incredible that was kind of the non-negotiable but then working with producers from wherever in the world who, who could make wine to my specifications um, so that was not um, an easy ask in itself and then getting into the whole branding element the PR the noise I mean every aspect um, was hugely complicated, lengthy, expensive. Um, nobody really starts champagne brands, <laughs> now I know why. Like you say, a very, very established industry to break through. Yeah. You have to have some firepower behind you, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. So you, so you mentioned, um, I mean, you mentioned sort of getting into debt at the beginning, which and we've all been there as entrepreneurs, but how else did you fund things in the early days? Well, the government um, in the UK, uh, I think it's still running, isn't it? Thank goodness. Um, you've got the SEIS system, which offers um, really good um, tax initiatives for, for people investing really early stage. And I think for any entrepreneur who is that early stage and hasn't looked into that, it's definitely worth researching. And actually, there's lots of people who will charge you lots of money to do that research, but it's really easy just to get online and do that yourself and, and save the money. Yeah, um, the, onto the HMRC website and explain the whole thing in, in layman's terms. <laughs> and, and that is a really, really useful um, funding process for early stage business. Um, and then later on, um, there's also EIS, which, which I've used latterly. But I think once I understood that those systems were out there and, and the opportunity they offered investors to, you know, to, to invest um, with a little less, less risk than, than they might have ordinarily um, and giving them more comfort, I, I felt like that was a potential gift. Um, I wanted to really understand the investment landscape, so I did a whole 360 on, on making sure I understood all of the different opportunities out there, and I would encourage every entrepreneur to do the same. I mean, again, with, with the internet, you can literally just immerse yourself in, in that research for free online. Um, there's a lot of time wasters that will charge you lots of money to do that, and I say make sure you're, you're armed initially with that research that you've done yourself, then look at whether you need the right expert to help you. But I think do, do make sure you understand the landscape because I think it's so difficult early stage when you're desperate for money um, to jump into the wrong deal and I see so many people do that and I think the good thing about my obsess obsession with the early groundwork and understanding really there's no such thing as free money which I think is important to understand too that you never want to be at the stage in your business where you regret taking that money and I think so many entrepreneurs get into that position and it's so easy to see how so I, I really wanted to understand um, what was out there and it didn't make the next stage any easier because it's all very well knowing what's out there but then you've got to find the money um, but I, I sort of would um, suggest that it's I've, I've been married quite a long time so I missed out on the speed dating um, sort of throwing myself into dating that world but I think it's really a little bit like that hypothetically is my analogy you've got to 
kiss a lot of frogs but don't get too close to them you know i just say take a lot of meetings with as many people as possible you know when you can learn when you can see if they might be interested you know it's really just a, a question if you've got a solid business plan and a great idea of playing the numbers game and i think you can't be afraid afraid of rejection um just like dating i think at the moment there's a lot of focus on on women getting rejected but truthfully male entrepreneurs entrepreneurs from any single background i mean i can't really picture you know the situation you'd be in um with any other sort of a diverse community probably statistically a lot worse because there's a lot of focus on, on women at the moment but i think it's hard to get money whoever you are so i think don't always take rejection personally and learn from it so i think that that would be my, my biggest sort of recommendation yeah, we have to have a thick skin. And it's about fit, isn't it? It doesn't mean that, that your business isn't any good. It just means that the fit perhaps isn't there. So um, so I agree with you, a numbers game. And so obviously, as you say, kind of the SEIS and EIS scheme are very helpful in terms of attracting those early stage investors. But how did you go out and find those people? Did you use your network or did you go to people you didn't know? Both of those things and the network thing. And I think um, all of those hustly skills that you need to raise, raise funds, you really need to either have innately or develop anyway as an entrepreneur. So I think if you're not from the corporate finance world, I had no experience of that. It was a question of aligning myself and understanding that, that sort of world. Um, you know, I've got entrepreneur friends who are from that background and that gives you, a, I suppose, a different kind of, of sideways leg up into understanding a little bit more, but it doesn't necessarily make it any easier. I suppose you just be good at your numbers. Um, but I think that um, making sure you fill in all of your gaps are really important. And, you know, I, I'm not the one who is incredible at that piece. So I made sure I'd align myself with somebody who was. And I think that often early stage entrepreneurs forget that you do need that team. You know, if you are out taking these big money meetings, asking for big commitment and you're just out there on your own, I don't think that's a sensible move. I think you really need to make sure you've got your CFO beside you. If you're, if you're more of a creative entrepreneur, I think you've got to really think about make that team that's there. And potentially if you haven't done it before and you are a first time CEO like me, making sure you've got somebody by your side who really does know the game and has been through it and really can compliment you in that way. So I think that that is hugely helpful if you don't have an official co-founder. So, so, so let's talk about the Scott in Thompson and Scott then. So I would say, um, <laughs> when I've drunk nine bottles with you, I'll tell you Scott. <laughs> Now, I'm not a big drinker, actually, which sounds completely absurd for someone who's got a drinks business. Um, I've got naughty, my non-alcoholic launching. Um, any, uh, the Scots shall remain a very big mystery, Julia, until um, I've really shifted the industry and uh, then I'll tell everybody. Okay, intriguing. Well, I want to find out more. <laughs> so you, do, you funded that early early raised with angel investors who came in as SEIS investors um, and EIS as well or was it just a, the first one was that an SEIS to start with then my second round we utilized EIS and actually we, we have done two on the third crowdfund round as well yeah well so let, let's talk about that third round then so in the early days you, you, you went out to angel investors and then you decided to crowdfund in yeah. 2018 so how, where had you got the business to at that point and then the second question around that is why did you decide to crowdfund? 
Well, that's a good question. And um, I think crowdfunding is a really interesting democratic process um, to get brand ambassadors on board. Um, food and drinks brands historically have done really well with crowdfunding. Um, and my closest advisor investor, who I like to almost bring in now as my co-founder, although that's technically unofficial, um, Patrick had grown, um, uh, I suppose, Britain's most famous craft beer, um, also drinks brands. Um, he's probably, I suppose, the, one of the best known people, if not the best known person in the UK uh, drinks business, along with his team. And he was working really closely with me. He had had a very successful um, recent crowdfund raise with, with a, a different brand he'd worked with. So it was really interesting to, to understand that story and, and appreciate the democratic sort of process because we always utilize PR. My husband's our comms director, he's a PR genius. Um, and so this is, you know, instead of marketing budget, you know, historically, we've made such a noise without spending any cash, mm -hmm. which rather wonderful I think because the story was so strong so we thought that crowdfunding could be very successful um, for us we had no idea just quite how successful it would be so that was really rather wonderful mm. um, but I think it's very interesting to also understand crowdfunding um, from the other side and I think anyone considering it I would suggest um, should really be aware of the fact that your business one needs to be really fairly simple to understand and I would say actually that's true of any business because the amount of wonderful entrepreneurs I meet who struggle to do their elevator pitch I think we're not always so good at that in the UK and my American friends you know they're all down with it um, but I think your business needs to be simple to understand and something that people can easily identify with and want to sort of be a part of so you know it's, it's that thing of when they're at dinner on Saturday night is it going to be kind of a sexy one-line share for them you know because you know if they put in 10 pounds they're getting B shares they're only getting a small portion of your business but they're still owning it and I think that's a really rather lovely system so making sure it's easy to understand also making sure that it's not a question of you launching your campaign online and then the magic happens. I didn't just raise over one million on Crowdcube by going online and then sitting back and watching the money come in. I mean, it's a concerted campaign for a few months. I mean, even prior to going onto the site, there's a lot of preparation to be done. The film, you have to make, you know, you have to make a really strong film that, that, that you know is compelling about your story. You also need to bring all of your community together. It's um I'm interested, you know, you talk about kind of all your customers and your fans and your suppliers coming on board. And did you do any analysis to look at what the split was on the investment in terms of people who you knew already versus people who came through the platform? Because you're so right, you know, people, you can't just put your campaign up there and expect it to roll in. You've got to bring your tribe with you. What, do you know what the split was? It was a really open split, actually. It's a good question. It was, it was quite open. Um, one really strategic, sizable, smart investor who um, may come on the board at some point um, actually came through the crowd and I'd had no relationship. Nobody in my team knew him. Interestingly, um, and this was where Patrick's skills expertise came in. I mean, he's famous within the drinks business and so this key investor had followed Patrick's journey and knew him and, and his story, but hadn't ever actually met him. So we had everybody, you know, from somebody like that to partners who distributed us, putting in cash, to a lot, quite a lot of people we had no relationship, putting in small amounts that added up to a fair bit. 
And then the other big, key, chunky, sizable um, investment came uh, from my um, Latin American partner who, who I'd mentioned. Um, but a really broad split. So um, I'd probably go 50, 50 or 60. 40 air tribe ballpark. Um, but actually, we just had a, an investor dinner for all the new air share, A shareholders, and there were some wonderful people who I would never probably have met had it not been through Crowdcube. So, definitely, they've got their community who are educated who, when they really see um, a good deal on the platform, um, they will engage. Another, probably worth sharing this bit of advice because I, I was told this and it really came to play. Um, during the campaign um, was making sure that you give everybody utmost respect and time because I think um, I had heard in the past some campaigns where you know you might think somebody might just have 10 pounds but 10 pounds times 10 is 100 times you know you've got to just think it, it, it all adds up and be really respectful for for those 10 pound shareholders because they could be the ones who, who sell your brand every weekend at parties and you know and I think that it was really important to remember that some of the people actually took up a lot of time. And I remember one key investor who put in a really nice amount of money and he did ask um, some really difficult questions. And I think I have heard stories of people doing campaigns and they, you know, it does take up a lot of time. You never know if somebody's got, you know, 10 pounds or might put in 100,000 pounds. You have no idea. So I think you have to treat everybody equally and assume whatever they might put in, however difficult their questions are, you really need to give them that care and attention. The Q&A is often, often carried out on the public forum. I mean, not always, but so you have to be respectful because those questions, the questions they're asking you and the answers you give are often read by other people who will then come and invest more. So it's never, Never a waste of time. Never a waste. No, of time. and you're right about that public forum thing. I had to think you have to look on that as PR. And occasionally, when particular investors I thought really were quite serious and wanted to get into the nitty gritty, then you suggest your meeting and you say, look, let's take this offline because I think there's no business I know that would want to be putting everything out in the public forums. So you're playing that balance out between the PR and what's what's appropriate to share generally with the crowd and then what you think is appropriate to share face to face if somebody's serious. And I think it's important to, to, to really um, take take the time to, to understand that. And, and, and that, that piece does take up a lot of time, yeah, as well. And what was your cutoff for being a, an A shareholder versus B? So five thousand pounds, we said, which I think w was fair. Hmm. How, how did your cap table end up in terms of how many investors um, you had through that company? Now over three hundred. Wow, amazing! Yeah. And did you do it as a, a direct shareholders, or have they come in under a nominee structure? Uh, so we've got A and B shareholders, and no, we went with the standard structure. So we've got we adopted the the, the articles that, that Crowdcube had suggested, um, and touch wood, everybody's happy so far. I mean, there'll always be challenges. Every business faces them, and we've got an AGM coming up, and you know, we had a a really tricky um, quarter when we were all all busy with the campaign, and we had a new branding going on. But right now, coming into spring summer, and with our new new bottle about to launch, I think um, exciting times ahead. Hopefully. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the target and how much you raised, because I think that's something people worry about. You know, they want to know how much should I raise and what target should I set on, on crowdfunding? You really overfunded your campaign, didn't you? So what, what were you thinking when you were planning what your target should be? 
Sure. I think what I had learned um, speaking to people who've done successful raises was that there is, right or wrong, there is quite a strong element of FOMO, fear of missing out on CrowdCube. And I don't know how much that's officially publicized, but I think there's no getting away from, from that. I mean, if you study successful um, funds, there's often been that element where things really ramp up with overfunding. So what we did officially was we went out for what we really needed as the minimum, and then we really hoped we would get um, two or 3,000, 100,000 more than that, and then we ended up smashing it. So I think that was how we'd, we'd really approached it. Mm -hmm. So we went out officially for 300. Um, we thought we'd be really comfortable and happy closing at half a million, and then we overfunded it over a million. So. So that was the truthful story behind it. Amazing. Must be hard to know when to cut it off. We keep going. <laughs> yeah, it really was. And um, that's, that was tricky. And there was a lot of wrangling amongst the team as to how we would play that. Um, that, that was hard. But nice problem to have when yeah. you have problems raising. So, you know, and time's running out. Like, like happens in every business. So I'd always rather have that problem. Yeah. But of course, I mean, it's also a function of how much of your equity you're prepared to give away so you know if you keep on taking the money eventually you'll give away all the company so you had you had a really healthy valuation on the business um of 6.5 million yeah. um how did you set the valuation how did the market take that valuation did you get any pushback on it yeah, i mean you get you'll, you'll know every entrepreneur gets pushback on their valuation and i think um lots of entrepreneurs get really upset really frustrated um, I think anybody who's scaled a business, anyone smart, anyone in the investment world knows there is so much finger in air regardless. Obviously, you're going to pay attention to EBITDA if, if, you're, if you're already profitable. We, we, were chasing, we, we were chasing profitability at a certain point, so we weren't chasing it until 2021 at that point anyway. So I think we made no bones about that. I think um, you really have to, in the drinks business, um, stay focused on, on, on your brand and what you believe your brand will achieve. Um, and luckily, although it's, it's quite a small pool I have to draw from in terms of that analysis, because Patrick, who I work with, has huge experience there, that was super useful. So I think if I hadn't had anybody there with me who was that expert, I would have recommended that, that, that somebody sought to find that person. Um, and of course, you know, an entrepreneur is always going to be defending their, their valuation because everybody always wants to bring it down. Um, in the end, actually, because we'd gone out originally at an 8 million valuation and because um, we had decided to bring in our Latin American partners, we'd had a tricky previous time with rebrand um, and we just decided that 6.5 actually was, was really a fair one. Mm. So historically, at the 300, we'd originally were going out at 8 million. So I felt like at the AGM, I could stand up much more confidently at, at, at 6.5. And I think we all ended up um, happy with that. And so also the investors, when we went back and said, actually, we're going to stick at 6.5 million rather than 8. I mean, that ended up being happy days for them. And it felt fair to me and the team. So... You know, there's so many things that, that come to play. And I think anyone who tells you it, and it's, it's an exact science, um, everybody's smart on it. It's supply and demand at the end of the day, isn't it? And if you go too high, you can end up shooting yourself in the foot for, potentially for subsequent rounds. Oh, yeah, because the last thing I, I would want to do publicly is then have to do a down round. You know, so I think, um, you know, you have to 
in your mind as the founder, you have to think, well, I was thinking at my AGM, you know, what can I stand up and justify? Mm -hmm. um, the last thing I wanted to do was pull, you know, pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I mean, that would be insane as an entrepreneur to, to try and do that. I think you get caught out quite quickly. I was going to ask you about um, the, the gender specific investors, because you were, I mean, I don't know whether you would position your talk about your brand as being very sort of female friendly, because I see it as being a very female friendly alcohol brand. Do, what, do you know what the split was in terms of men to women on your, on, on your cap table? Well, investors, um, it's not necessarily skewed. Um, interestingly, my first founder investor was a woman. Um, Genevieve, and, and she's been fantastic. And I've got some key female investors. I've also got some fantastic male investors. And actually, I, I think I probably expected it may be more heavily skewed to women. I think, um, interestingly, uh, I'm just looking back historically at the drinks business. Male investors in that space would be more prevalent. I think anybody who really is smart and knows about the drinks business, historically there will be a lot of men as well as women, and historically in the drinks business, there would always be more men. So I think because my brand is so future-facing, we know exactly what we're doing. We've got non-alcoholic, you know, that's arguably gonna make our fortune. I think if you're smart about trends, then um, that's coming across the genders. And in the drinks business specifically, it's skewed towards men because the drinks business is just yeah. men. Yeah. So that kind of goes back to, I suppose my, that's the long answer, my short answer is no, it was about 50-50. It wasn't necessarily skewed actually towards well, actually, But that's not bad. I would say, I mean, crowdfunding, you tend to get more women investing, but it's usually only 25% women versus 75% men. So if, you're, if you've got more to, close to parity, that's, um, it means that your brand has attracted a lot more female investors than, than, than a normal brand would. Which I think we probably probably have, yeah. That's good, good stuff. So, I mean, obviously you had all these Q&A to deal with investors, I mean, what, but what do you feel like were the top things that really pulled people in? What was it that really attracted them to investing in you? I think it's a combination of um, vision, Confident and confidence. Um, I think the team, which I've touched on, I think don't underestimate, you know, you can't be a lone wolf out there really. It's, it's, I think it's a mistake. And I think if you are, then, then, then surround yourself with that really strong team. And I think, um, you know, the trend, the way the world's going, I think, um, you know, I know I don't sit here arrogantly when I say we are the future of drinking. And I think that's a hugely powerful thing. So I think a combination of those three yeah, and you, and you do absolutely exude that confidence around her. It's incredible. Where, where do you think that comes from? Where do you get, get that confidence? Good question. Um, so my parents split when I was young. I, I had an uh, immigrant father and an entrepreneur mother who, when I use entrepreneur in her sense, um, it was a single mother putting food on the table. So that's why she was ahead of the game with her health food business and wanting to bring me up properly but it was very much not an entrepreneur in the successful, lots of money around sense. Um, I think uh, childhood 
a struggle is probably quite useful if I'm being quite honest um, about entrepreneurs and when we sit down alone <laughs> entrepreneurs together there's usually been a, a, a catalyst it's never actually about the money although we all want to make a lot of it to change the world otherwise you know I think it's, it's slightly pointless because you know I think you need to, to want that profit with purpose thing and, and have a grand vision I believe in 2019 um, but it's never about the literal money I think it, it's always about the vision and I think it's often about having something to prove um, if I'm really honest and, uh, and I've got a lot to prove and I'm looking forward to to proving it I suppose that that's the truthful answer <laughs> I have a feeling that you're going to somehow <laughs> I mean what do, what do you what would your advice be to other women entrepreneurs that are out there thinking about raising you know, what are the top bits of advice that you would want to pass on given your experience I think um, woman, man, gay, straight, black, white, I think it's the same for all entrepreneurs. I don't think if you're a woman now, um, it, you should feel like it's any harder. I think, I feel it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I'm sort of talking now, I get asked to do a lot of talks and I, I feel like now I want to just talk about being an entrepreneur and, and uh, yes, I'm a woman, but you know, I think in a way we probably now need to focus on other diverse elements of entrepreneurialism because I think there's no better time for my daughter, for me, than there is now in 2019 um, to be a woman in business because of all the focus on us, really. And if we take, take the spotlight and the microphone, you know, I think that's a hugely exciting opportunity. So I think for all entrepreneurs, um, I would say if you've got a vision, and I think the vision is really the key. I really do. Um, I'm not for a moment saying kitchen table businesses for a lifestyle aren't relevant i think you if you want to do that then i'm probably not the person for the advice but i think if you've got a vision and you really want to make a difference in the world and you really believe that you're doing something different and it doesn't have to be dramatically different even it might be a an iteration that just improves upon something that, that then becomes visionary as a lot of the best businesses are then i think um go out and uh, and, and follow your dream. I wouldn't recommend it um, unless you really have that thing in your heart. Otherwise, I think, do the lifestyle thing, make your money that way. I think it's very, very easy to underestimate the emotional toll that, that uh, entrepreneurism takes on the individual, on the families around you, on your friends. Um, I think there's such a dramatic dichotomy between the media's vision and the vision we put forward for PR purposes of what it's like to be a founder and the truth and reality. And I think um, I'm always personally conflicted about how much to share. I think I'll, I'll go I'll go out all wards and all with the truth once I've once I've just the industry and have exited and worth a huge amount of money and have really changed the world um because i think you have to be very careful how much truth you tell along the way because you're still you're still really um there making the difference and, and pushing the story but i think there's a few key businesses and, and leaders who are, who are sort of focusing more on that mindset of the mental health piece and i think don't underestimate that that piece and make sure you've got the support you need I mean, I don't suffer from clinical depression. Um, I know somebody close to my family who does, and I would say it's not for the faint-hearted. I really would. I mean, you know, you, you have days when you, you get out of bed and you go, literally, why the hell am I doing this? And no one sometimes is going to propel you forward apart from you. And it tends to be true in the entrepreneurial world that, you know, when 
when the chips are down, you know, uh, I believe in karma, but you might have a really, really long, broad period of the chips being down. And that can be hugely tough. You know, and sometimes, you know, it's very lonely. You're all in your head dealing with that. So I think really go for it with the passion if you've got that passion. Make sure that you've got supportive people around you. Um, but even when you've got those supportive people, ultimately it's a lonely place in your head. So make sure you've got that mental strength and resilience. And if you don't, and you know you don't from the get-go, I would work on developing that first. Um, because it's a lonely road and it's and it's not easy. It's yeah. not easy. it's kind of nine it's ninety percent at least I would say mindset and confidence, so much of it. It's um it's a tough one. It's not as sexy as it looks from the outside, is it sometimes? It really isn't. Um brilliant. Well so what's finally what's next for you, Amanda? Where are you gonna take the, the business in 2019 and beyond? And do you think you're gonna have to go out and raise finance again to help you with the growth? that's an interesting one um never say never i say but for the money question for all entrepreneurs never say never um we're in a good place at the moment we've got a strong runway um naughty launches literally anytime soon i'm waiting for the email to say it's out in market um that's sad beautiful um non-alcoholic organic vegan sparkling wine um i like to see it as a global game changer um luckily lots of other people that are seeing it that way too um it plays into my philosophy of drinking beautifully or not drinking at all. And my not drink at all thing is drinking non-alcoholic beautifully. Um, and I think if you look at trends, that, that's a hugely exciting space because so many young people are choosing not to drink alcohol at all. Um, very smartly, I mean, I think, and lots of older people, people of all ages, are choosing to be much more flexible about possibly just at weekends or just drinking beautiful champagne like mine and, you know, having a bit less of it and having days off. I mean, that, ironically, despite having a historically alcohol brand, now I'm going into non-alcoholics, but that's always been my philosophy. So that's our big push. Um, we've got gorgeous, sexy, luxe new branding, which I've been working on for a long time. And that, that, hits, um, that hits the market this spring, summer with Naughty leading the charge. Um, we're very much focused on our growth in California, specifically in the US, because we're growing out our direct-to-consumer there. And there's a really interesting um, win in America with, with e-commerce, so we're excited about that. Um, we're also growing our market in New Zealand, um, looking for the right partner in Australia, which we're hopefully close to finding, um, growing South Africa, and we've got some incredible partners all, all over the world. Um, so I think we're in um, a really exciting, strong position now. Um, it doesn't mean there won't be hiccups along the way. Uh, Mexico's growing nicely and our, our partners there are, are working with us in a different capacity because that's the interesting thing about um, when you get partners who then invest who are, who are distributing your brand because then they really galvanize their home market. So that's interesting. Um, so so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, a, to a strong spring, summer, um, a really exciting Christmas, and then, uh, and then really growing the global message across, across 2020. Wow, next step, total global domination. <laughs> I can't wait to try the new, the new non-alcoholic wine, that sounds amazing. So it's coming out when? Well, literally any day now, any day now. Exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, it's been great to hear about how you've grown the business, how you've funded. Loads of great top tips there. Thank you very much. And um, yep, yeah, bring on the non-alcoholic wine. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. Thank really appreciate your time, Julia. Cheers. Bye.
Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free, so if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.